Thanks for tuning in to a podcast, the podcast that focuses on the Southern resident killer whale pods, J-Pod, K-Pod, and L-Pod. Today, we are fortunate to have Dr. Holly Fernbach. She is the Marine Mammal Research Director with SR3. That stands for Sea Life Response, Rehabilitation, and Research. So basically, you take aerial photographs from a drone and those are used to diagnose how the southern resident killer whales are doing intimately acquainted with what's been on all of our minds over the last few weeks which is j50 that southern resident killer whale calf uh, who was not doing well you noticed that in your photographs and were able to diagnose it that she was facing a real risk of death which now uh, has unfortunately happened so i i want to ask you first maybe explain to us exactly like what is this type of photography that you're doing and why is it used specifically to track the health of the southern resident killer whales? Uh, sure, Allison. Yes, this is this is actually um, a study that's been going on since 2008. Um, and so this is our, our ninth effort um, in the 10-year time span. And we first started taking these high-resolution aerial images using a helicopter back in 2008. And the first question that we had was, could we identify individuals from the air and, and link it to the known life histories of these individuals, um, which has been monitored by the Center for Whale Research um, for more than 30 years now. And we showed that we were able to not only collect these great images. We could link these to individual histories, um, but then we could also evaluate the body condition, um, both with nutritional status and reproductive status, and monitor growth of individuals, estimate real size of individuals. Um, and so we've continued to do this. We did the, the helicopter monitoring in 2008 and 2013, and then shifted to use unmanned aircraft um, in 2014. And it allows us to collect these incredible images. All of this is done under um, permit from, from National Marine Fisheries Services, and we fly um, over 100 feet in altitude. Um, but we're able to collect these images and follow individuals over time. And so with J50, we actually were able to, to photograph her in her first year of life. Um, she's always been a very a very small whale. She was much smaller than the, the rest of her cohort during that, that baby boom period. Um, she's always been very thin, and so it's something that, that each year um, after our, our effort, and we're actually doing seasonal efforts now, um, we're able to inform management groups um, to help aid in management decisions. So we have this quantitative data that we can we can get from these photos. Um, and one way that we'll be able to do that is the um, the drones um, provide us with altitude data. And so we have you know the altitude where the, that the photo was collected, and we can measure pixels in the photographs, and we can use a scale to um, turn this into real estimates of size, and we can look at the body shape profiles to look at conditions. So we can monitor changes in condition um, in seasons and across years, and again, inform management agencies both in the U.S. and in Canada. Why does taking the photo from above the animal make a difference for the diagnostics you're trying to achieve? It provides a very different um, perspective. I think we are all shocked at at how much you could see. Um, you know, when you're taking boat-based images, you can just see the the top profile of the animal, and you 
generally you can't detect that anything's wrong until the animal is severely emaciated, like like J50. But we can actually detect subtle changes in condition, and then we can hopefully inform management before it's too late. Um, one thing with population monitoring, um, that it's very coarse when you just use deaths and births, um, and that we are trying to provide information that, that could prevent deaths of animals. Um, if we do see a significant decline in condition, like we just showed with, with K25, and like we've documented for a number of individuals um, since the start of the study, um, that hopefully some, some actions can be taken to, to prevent um, the mortality. Okay, so we talked about J50. Now that we've now already moved on, I guess, to a new whale that's catching everyone's attention, K25. Uh, you guys have said that your photographs have shown um, emaciation, body decline. Can you tell us exactly what you saw change over time with K25 and why that's concerning? And, and then also, how does that compare to the condition that J50 was in? Okay, yes. Um, one thing, and I, I think a lot of people are aware of with the, the southern resident killer whale population especially, is that um, the individuals within the population, um, you know, they're all related. They all they all share food. Um, and a lot of the females actually will share with the, the males um, at their own detriment. So um, a lot of times you see um, both the, the mothers and, and siblings chasing around fish and, and animals like J26 from the J16s will actually come and just take the fish and a lot of times won't actually share back. Um, and we normally don't see declines in, in males, especially adult males. They have the higher, highest energetic um, demand in the population, um, but they have generally been robust. K25 is the first male that we've seen decline in condition like this. And two things to look at, um, you know, we do a series of uh, measurements along the entire body axis of the whale. So from the pictures that you can see with, with K25, we take more than 50 individual measurements from that photograph. And we really focus on the, the head area because when whales decline in condition, they lose that adipose tissue or fat behind the cranium. Um, and so you could you could kind of look at the um, the angles of the eye patch. And generally, when animals are robust, they angle outwards. Like we um, uh, posted a picture showing um, 2016, and that the eye patches are angled outwards. He was in very good shape, and now they're pretty much straight up and down. Um, you could see in the images from J50 that the eye patches actually start to trace the shape of the skull. So she has that really pronounced peanut head. So K25 isn't isn't to that stage yet, but you could see a marked difference just in the in the shape of the um, the eye patches that that skull. But you can also look at his entire um, body shape, and you could see he's probably about half as robust as he was. That so you could see that his body axis is very thin all the way down from the, the, the tip of his rostrum all the way down to the flukes. Um, just very thin condition. Again, we don't normally see this in males. It's it's not very surprising um, for K25 because it's been published that a lot of these adult males after their mothers died and K13 um, died a year ago, um, that the, the males just can't support themselves. Um, so these females help keep these males alive. Um, so we don't know exactly what's wrong with him, but we know that his body appears to be losing fat. Is that right? Right. I mean, yes. I mean, one thing that we, from from the work that we've we've conducted and from um, the analyses of 
of these photos over the past 10 years, we've documented a decline in condition for the southern resident killer whales at a, at a population level between 2008 and 2018. Um, we've mostly seen this in, in J-Pod, but we, we have seen it in the other pods as well. Um, and for K25, it's, it's something that, that's alarming um, to, to see this kind of um, decline in condition. Um, it's what we've also shown is that the declines that we have been able to detect, especially like seasonal, it's likely related to food availability. And so the declines in the availability of salmon, um, it's most likely the reason that we're seeing this decline in his body condition. K25 sister, K27, is also catching your attention because she's pregnant. It's hard not to get excited when these whales have a pregnancy, but it also is kind of a sad thing because how many of them end in uh, miscarriages and how often the calves don't end up surviving. So uh, let's just talk a little bit about that. I mean, is this good news? Is this bad news? What does this mean when you have a pregnancy in 2018 for the southern resident killer whales? Um, I think when you have... and. Well, I can start with that. Uh, each year, we've been able to document a number of of pregnant whales, and um, as a lot of the um, hormone work has shown, and then the work from Sam Wasser and the University of Washington um, has shown that there's a, a high level of reproductive um, failure. We've documented um, through our, our shape profile analysis. A lot of times, it's the majority of the females that don't um, successfully give birth, or they give birth and then the calf doesn't doesn't survive. Um, so when we see a pregnant animal, it's, it's exciting because you need that to, to help um, recover the population. But the reproductive females um, suffer the huge impact from lactation. And so it's a huge energetic cost for them to be able to provide that nutrition to their offspring. And a lot of times these females have, have multiple offspring. Um, and so it, it's something that it's, it's, we need this to allow for population growth, but it, it is something that's very concerning given um, that it appears that a lot of these animals are having a hard time finding a lot of food. You've also documented other pregnancies within the southern resident killer whale uh, pods. Can you talk a little bit about what else you've seen? Sure. We've actually um, documented pregnancies in, in all three pods um, within the southern resident population. Um, and we recently uh, documented, we're able to, to see J41, who's another um, very pregnant female, uh, catching a fish. And, and J51, who's her dependent offspring, who's from that same cohort as, as J50, um, was right there trying to catch that fish with her. And I think that brings to delight the importance of, of having, having a lot of space for foraging for these whales, that um, it takes them a lot of times on an upwards of 10 minutes to actually successfully catch a fish. Fish. Um, and so with a lot of these females, especially those that we found to be pregnant, they need a lot of food to, to feed themselves so they can have a successful um, pregnancy and, and carry it through and give birth, but then they also need to keep their other offspring alive. And if folks are interested in seeing that photo, I should also reference, uh, you guys are putting that on your SR3 Facebook page, right? Yes, Okay. are. Awesome. And then I'll also post it to my Facebook page, Allison Morrow, A-L-I-S-O-N-M-O-R-R-O-W, in case you're listening to this podcast and you don't know who the heck I am. <laughs> but you know who Holly is now, right? Because she's told you she's super smart. Um, I guess, Holly, is there anything else when it comes to specifically like what you're seeing right now that we should be talking about before we kind of move on to the bigger picture of just 
your thoughts on recovery for these whales uh, from what you've learned? Um, sure. One of the things that, that we have noticed, and it's something that from, from other uh, posts um, from this season, uh, we've noticed declines in condition um, for a number of, of different whales. So we, we reported a decline in the condition of J16. Um, I think a lot of this was, was related to her trying to, to keep J50 alive, try to um, share the fish with J50 and the other offspring that she has. Um, we're hoping that we see an increase in condition um, throughout the season. So we've been able to photograph her um, quite regular. We've actually had the best success this season that we have um, in any years as far as the southern residents spending time around the San Juan Island, which is great since they, they didn't show up during our spring health assessment period. Period. Um, so we've been able to really document from the beginning of September all the way until the end um, how the whales are doing. September is a time of year that we usually see an improvement in condition. A lot of times they'll show up in, in May after their winter foraging and they're much more lean than they are when we leave in September. So that, that, that fall foraging is really important to them as well. So when we do see a number of lean whales as we have um, this season that have not only um, they appear lean now, but they've been declining in condition from the last time we photographed them. Um, it, it's, it's very alarming because we, we hope to see them in more robust condition when they're going into their winter foraging period. Um, so we've been able to document J16, who's been declining, um, as well as J17, who's another reproductive female from um, the J-Pod, who has a dependent juvenile, again, from that same court cohort as, as J50. And so it's it's something that... Um, it's certainly concerning for us um, to still um, see these these lean whales, um, and it, it's hopefully something that if they can um, find enough find enough food, and if we're all able to to give them space, that they're going to be able to recover and, and increase in condition. So, great transition to what can we do? Because I get that question a lot. What should people be yeah. doing right now? The three key threats for for southern resident killer whales are, are contaminants. Um, disturbance from vessels and, and food. Um, and one of the key things that's something that was just um, brought public with the K25 is that we need to just give them more space so that, that they can successfully forage on um, these foraging events. Again, like I said, they can take upwards of, of 10 minutes. They need to be able to acoustically detect these fish. They need to be able to chase the fish. And, and just any kind of disturbance uh, in close proximity could could really disrupt this. And then when you have individuals like K25 and and you know the J pod, actually the whole population um, that may be pregnant or maybe declining in condition, they really need to be able um, to forage and not have any kind of disturbance. And and they, we also need to be able to to increase both the availability and the accessibility uh, of their prey, which is a long-term um, management aim. But something that we can do in the short term is just provide them with some space. Do you have any idea how many fish one of these adult killer whales needs, say, per day. Does that, does that, has anybody quantified that? You know, like, so when you're saying give them space so they can find some fish, how many do they need to find? Like one per whale, two, three, four? I don't actually know the exact number. It's one of the things that we're actually going to be working um, with colleagues is about from our estimates of real size, we're going to be able to um, estimate the mass and then work with um, folks to, to identify um, exactly how many fish each 
you know, gender and age class needs. So if you have a five-year-old male, how much does that need? You could do pod-specific calculations. You could do each match line since they do move and spend time in a, a number of different areas. Um, so it's something that we're actually actively working on is how much the population needs as a whole um, um, for the, the energetic requirements from the salmon. It's time. Uh, got the governor's task force um, working on recommendations and moving forward towards a deadline, I believe, in November. So the time is now for something. Is it too late? I always ask everybody that. Is it too late at this point? Is there hope for these whales? Um, and if there is hope, what is it? No, I, I absolutely don't think that it's too late. Um, you know, the the population now numbers 74. It's the lowest and and more than three decades, but you still have a number of reproductive females, you have pregnant females, you have reproductive age uh, males, and, you know, the, our project provides quantitative data that can help management both in the short and the long term. In the long term, we can provide these quantitative metrics of health to help inform management decisions, including prioritizing salmon stocks. Um, but in the short term, we can provide real-time assessment of individual and population-level health, and this became especially apparent with, with J50, um, that we were able to, to track from when we first photographed her um, until you know the last time that we saw her in, in September, and we could document both the seasonal and annual changes. Um, and so it's, a, it's an incredibly valuable um, and robust data set um, that, we, that we now have that we can track these individuals over time and, and detect both subtle and significant um, changes and, and work with management um, to try to try to make a change. And it, it may be in, you know, increasing space around these whales. It, it could be, um, you know, informing decisions on, on fisheries actions. Um, so we're, we're really excited that we're able to provide this information. Um, and I think we're seeing real change now. Um, I think it's one of the first years we've, we've been providing this information every year. Um, and we're seeing real, real changes in, in management decisions. And I, I think it provides uh, a lot of hope for this population. Have you seen in your photos any whales that are getting better? I always hear, okay, we're concerned about this whale, we're concerned about that whale. Have we seen any whales that didn't look so good get better? We haven't ever seen an animal um, come back from a, a severe peanut head in, in our work. Um, but we do regularly see um, increases in condition. A lot of this is um, like I mentioned, with the demands of lactation on a reproductive female, so they're they're very very robust when they're when they're pregnant, and then as they're providing uh, nutrition for their offspring, you see a decline in the condition, and then when they stop nursing and the juvenile is feeding on its own, you sit, see them increasing in condition again. Most of the time, you didn't see that with with J28 and and, and J16, um, J36 after after she lost 52, you did see this this increase in condition again. Um, and so it, we have uh, seen a number of individuals that have increased, um, especially between that May and September time, as I, as I mentioned, when they show up in May after that winter foraging, um, you know, the animals from all three pods have actually been in worse condition. And then we've actually seen them improve um, into the September and into that fall foraging period.
we've had a really successful um, season this year. We've been able to, to photograph 69 of the 74 whales. Uh, the only five whales um, that we haven't photographed are from the L54s who haven't actually come into the study area. Uh, so we're really excited to, and we actually have repeat um, days on a lot of these 69 whales. And so it's, it's we have a really, really robust data set. We've had um, very good weather conditions. And then again, um, a lot of repeats of individuals. Dr. Holly Fernbach with SR3, Sea Life Response Rehabilitation and Research. You're the Marine Mammal Research Director. You do a lot of work out there, long days on the water, and we are certainly appreciative that you took some time for us today. Thank you. Okay, thank you.